Please turn your Bibles now to the book of Judges, chapter 4. You can find this on page 700, or 279, sorry, 279 in the Pew Bible. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version here, which matches what's in the Pew translation. So for those of you who are visiting us, we have been working through the book of Judges. Now we are set to study the fourth judge, which is actually uh, an unlikely team of people. And it's important to note that chapters 4 and 5 actually go together. Chapter 4 is sort of a narrative description of uh, a battle and uh, God's deliverance. And then chapter 5 is a song celebrating uh, the results of the battle. So we'll take the narrative part in chapter 4 this week, and then Lord willing, we'll look at the song celebrating these events next week uh, when we take up chapter 5. Children, you need to listen uh, closely. Uh, I'm sure this uh, story is somewhat familiar, but if not, this has a somewhat surprising ending to it. So uh, pay attention now as we read God's word from Judges chapter 4. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Hagoim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree of Za'ah Naim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot, But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. 
However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he, sent, uh, and when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. Well, the other evening, uh, Amy and I were trying to find something to watch on Netflix. And so uh, we were scanning through the choices. And uh, we watched a couple of trailers and uh, kept scanning and eventually uh, just gave up and went to bed. And I hope we're not the only people that have done something like that before. Many, many choices. Uh, Sometimes it's difficult to make a decision. One of the descriptions of one of the choices uh, caught my eye. And in that description, the female lead character was described as a, quote, Schwarzenegger-grade action hero, end quote. Uh, and uh, I, it's probably hard to believe I skipped that one, but yes, I did skip that one. Uh, but uh, it's interesting that often for a woman to be pictured as the hero, uh, she has to take on the characteristics of a man. And so she has to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger in order to be a true hero. And sadly, uh, Deborah has often been used by people as a sort of feminist icon that is meant to show us uh, what a real hero can be like. And if we read the passage this way, we're missing the point entirely because the passage isn't meant to teach us about gender roles or what defines a true hero, but rather how God works, often in very surprising ways. And the proper reaction to this story is to be blown away by the grace of God and the way it comes through his people. And it's very important for us to understand this message because as we get into the minutia of our own lives, we are often blind to seeing and truly appreciating the incredible ways in which God's grace is coming to us in unexpected and in surprising ways. And so the point of the message is very simple. It's in the outline that was given as an insert in the bulletin. God's grace comes to you in surprising ways. 
And you and I need to learn how to marvel at his unexpected work in our lives. And children, I have to say that the, the drawings I'm getting from you are very good, so keep them up. Now today, you may draw any one of these different characters of Deborah under her tree or Jael in her tent or Barak on Mount Tabor and uh, listen to hear how God used these people to deliver his people. Well, the first thing I want us to notice as we start working through the passage is that you are constantly in need of God's grace. We see this in verses 1 to 3. So the 80 years of peace that was brought about by Ehud when he slayed uh, Eglon, and then that was preserved, you remember, by Shamgar, one of the minor judges we studied last week. Um, This peace was uh, disturbed because, as it said in verse 1, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So prosperity uh, brings uh, sort of a complacency, moral laxity, and idolatry. They turn away from God. And so God then sells them in, it tells us in verse 2, sells them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. So here is a new oppressor. And again, this is under the authority of God as he's working to bring his people back to their senses. Now, Jabin's headquarters is in a place called uh, Hazor. And uh, if you look in the map that I gave you on the back of the outline, uh, you can see Hazor is in sort of on the left side, north of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 10 to 15 miles north of Galilee. And so if you see the dotted line, those are important trade routes going out to the east. And so uh, he set up his, his uh, fortress in a large city that, uh, that has been discovered and uh, archaeologists know of it. So he was set up there controlling the trade routes to the east. Now, it tells us also of another man, his henchman, seems like a mercenary that he had hired, this man named Sisera. And it says that Sisera dwelt in Heresheth Hagoim. And archaeologists are not 100% sure where this is, but they think it's over here toward, um, uh, toward the coast of the Mediterranean Sea uh, to the west. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a name there with a question mark on it. And so we think that, uh, that uh, um, Sisera with all his iron chariots is over here. And so this would be an interesting way to keep the people under oppression, right? You have his his uh, uh, Jabin city on the east, and then on the west, you have Sisera with his 900 chariots. Uh, There's a little disagreement, but some think that the name Heresheth Hagoim actually means the the ironworks of the nations, and the idea being here that there's some kind of a foundry there as well. And so he has 900 iron-plated chariots, which would have been an incredible force in those days. Uh, where you could run chariots. Oftentimes they put scythes or other things on the wheels and you could run chariots into uh, troops that were on on the ground and just mow them down. Also very mobile. And so if uh, an army had archers, they could position their archers. They could chase down a fleeing foe. And so really... um, put, a, put a, a force that was invincible there in the middle of Israel. And so it tells us in verse 3 that he harshly oppressed them for 20 years. They were suffering under 
uh, his oppression. I put in the outline also some cross-references, and uh, I'll, I'll refer to a couple places in chapter 5 that we'll look at next week, Lord willing. But this period is described in Judges 5, verses 6 and 7. It says, In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anat, and the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel. So that's the state of affairs. You're terrified to go out on the main roads. Uh, people, normal life has a basically ceased, and people are creeping around on the back roads to try to get where they need to go. And it's particularly noteworthy in all of this that the, the, the threat now is coming from within the promised land. So, so far we've had invaders coming from outside And this now is an oppressor from within the land that they had actually already conquered under Joshua. If you look in in the outline there, Joshua 1 verse 10, Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. So about a hundred years previously, Joshua had taken that city and interestingly enough, in the book of of, uh, Joshua, the, the king's name was also Jabin which suggests that that was sort of a dynastic title like Pharaoh or Caesar that was being used by this group that was in the northern part of Canaan that was dominating that area and so was called the King of Canaan. And uh, Matthew Henry speaking about this says insightfully to be oppressed by those whom their fathers had conquered and who they themselves had foolishly spared could not but be very grievous and, uh, and this is certainly the case that this was uh, this was one of these own goals that they had created by not dealing with these people properly before uh, a good friend of mine uh, when I was younger struggled with some serious addiction problems and by God's grace um, he'd come to faith in Christ and he'd had some measure of success over his addiction but his, his obsessive personality would come out uh, in other ways and he would continue to struggle with sin in other areas of his life. And perhaps you've experienced things like this where you think you've had a measure of success in getting control of certain sins you struggle with, whether it's your temper or your language or uh, your internet habits, whatever it may be. And then seemingly out of nowhere, you find yourself back uh, struggling with these very same sins or other ones that are similar. And uh, it's a reminder that you and I don't just need God's grace for salvation. We need it for salvation. We cannot come to faith unless he first does a work in our heart. Uh, Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day, that, cr- that your heart has to be changed before you can come to Christ. And so we understand our need for grace. But this text is reminding us that we need God's grace every day. We don't just need it when we start our Christian life. It, yes, we need it at that point, but we need it every single day as we continue to battle sin and temptation in our life. There was uh, an, an article last week that I saw where Uh, an author was bemoaning what he called the total disappearance of the 
of the uh, prayer meeting in the church, that, um, that people gathering for corporate prayer just doesn't happen at all anymore in the church at large. We're very grateful that we have a very dedicated uh, prayer group in our own congregation. But part of the reason is it seems like this, this sense of dependence that we need God constantly is lost and that there's somehow we act like we're, we're doing this in our own strength after we first come to faith. And so this is the position God puts them in and their response is to cry out to God for help. So this reminds us of the constant need we have for God's grace. But secondly, then we see here that God's grace may come to you through unexpected people. In verses four to nine, where we are introduced to some of the unlikely players in this drama. And the first one is this woman, Deborah. Deborah is described as a prophetess. This would make her the first prophet, the first spokesperson for God since the days of Moses. And she comes, uh, it says, operating under a tree uh, in the mountains of Ephraim. So Deborah is actually a long way away from the action. She's south, she's not even on our map. Ephraim is south of our map. So she's a long way from where all of this is going on. But it tells us here that the people were coming to her for judgment. And, and this is the same word that's used to describe the other judges in this book. So she is a judge in, in the full sense of the other judges in the book. Now what's interesting is we've seen there are two roles of the judge. One is as a military deliverer, but the other is to draw the people back to faith in Christ and to service to God. And, and this is, seems to be what she is doing. No, she's not a Schwarzenegger-grade action hero, but she is a judge who is serving as a civil and religious leader at the time, calling people back to God and, and, uh, and pointing them uh, to their need for him and for faithful service. And, and perhaps this is an indictment on the lack of, of male leadership at this time, but perhaps it's God's way of getting our attention, that he's about to do something very unexpected and very incredible. And so God gives to Deborah a word in verse 6, and she is to call uh, this man Barak, uh, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali. So uh, again, back to your map. So Kadesh is the city at the very top in the tribe of Naphtali, which is in gray. So this is where he's from. He's a judge from way up in the north. Uh, those people would be experiencing the oppression of uh, Jabin and his people. So Barak makes the long trip down uh, to Deborah and uh, to get his, uh, his marching orders. And, and she does give him very specific marching orders. She actually gives him the battle plan. She says to him, you are to raise an army uh, calling to your brethren and Naphtali and Zebulun and uh, raise an army of 10,000. And then uh, he, she says, you are to go to Mount Tabor and then uh, the Lord will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon and I will deliver him into your hand. So again, it's hard to have a battle without a map. So I apologize for continuing to go back to the map. But if you want to understand what's going on, Mount Tabor is right in the middle, sort of uh, um, in the north part of Issachar. There's a triangle there. That's where he is to assemble his troops. And then uh, uh, Sisera is going to bring his chariots out of Harasheth Hagoyim uh, down along the Kishon River. 
And so the Jezreel Valley goes from uh, the Mediterranean here and Mount Carmel is here all the way through kind of towards Mount Tabor. And you can see pictures. Mount Tabor is about 1,800 feet high and it gives a great view over this is a long valley and there's a river called the Kishon that's running through it. So God is saying, uh, you bring your men here, I'm going to bring the enemy there and this is where you will engage. And God promises in verse 7, I will deliver him into your hand. But there's a slight problem because in verse 8, Barak says to Deborah, I'll, this is fine, I like the plan, the only caveat is you have to go with me. So again, once you realize how far this is, he, he wants a woman to come with him and to endanger herself and to come all the way up where this battle is going, you realize that, that something is, is not quite right. And I think that's borne out by her response in verse 9, which is, I will go with you, but you are not going to get any glory out of this, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And of course, we all think at this point, that must mean Deborah is going to get the glory if you're going to drag Deborah up here and put her in, in harm's way. And that is, in fact, what she decides to do. Um, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because the Bible pre- presents Barak as a genuine hero of the faith. I give you a couple examples. One from 1 Samuel 12, verse 11. The Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and these others to deliver you out of the hands of your enemies. And the New Testament also affirms this in the book of Hebrews, verse 32 and following. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and it lists a number of others and what they did. And at the end of that, verse 34 um, they turned to flight, the enemies of the aliens. This is clearly what God did with Barak. So he is a genuine man of faith, and at the same time, he's a man of faltering faith who needs Deborah with him if he's going to obey the word of God. Tim Challey's uh, linked to an interesting article on his uh, blog this last week, and it was a story written by a woman whose family had gone overseas while her husband was studying uh, in, uh, in England, and I know we've had some families in here that have done this, so you can relate to this. And she said the very first week they went to church, a small church in the, in the town where they were going to be, and after the service, an older lady in the congregation came up to their family and said, we, we want you to come and have dinner with us. We want to come show you hospitality. And the woman wrote that this older lady took them into her family and treated uh, her kids like her own grandkids and and was a a constant source of encouragement and support for them while they were living overseas far from their own extended family. And and the relationship was so meaningful that they stayed in touch with this older lady uh, for the rest of her life, even though they left and they went back to America and what a profound impact that had on them. And it, it reminds us that God's grace, that's God's grace coming to those people through an unexpected person, someone you do not expect. And that's what's going on here. Deborah is the only female judge, the only civil leader, female civil leader that we have in the Bible. She's a real rarity. And here is Barak, a man with faltering faith who won't go into this battle unless he takes the prophetess with him. And yet these are the very people 
This is the unlikely pair that God uses to turn aside this army with its 900 uh, chariots that have iron plating on them. And uh, if you just think for a few moments about some of the people that God has used to bless you, you will be able to see what is going on here, that God, God's grace comes to you, sometimes through unexpected people. We also see here that his grace can come to us through surprising circumstances in verses 10 to 16. So Barak follows these instructions. He gathers his army, and we'll talk more about that actually next week. And then we get this interesting side note in verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree of Zaanaim. Now this is in here on your map as well. So Mount Tabor is here. And then if you go up from it, it's got a question mark on it. But so sort of in the region of Mount Tabor, here this man Heber has moved. And the reason that is interesting, it seems like a strange aside at this point in the story, is that the Kenites are actually settled way down in the south uh, in Judah. And, and we read about that in chapter 1 uh, of, um, of the book. Um, if you look uh, in the, in the cross-reference, chapter 1, verse 16, the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah in the wilderness of Judah, which lays near the, in the south near Eretz. So they're, they're way down there. So it's a strange thing. Why is this man all the way up here uh, taking his family in their tents? And why are they nearby? Well, it could be uh, somewhat related to what we hear in verse 12, which is that they reported to Sisera that Barak and the, sons, the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor. So this force... Has, uh, has gathered on Mount Tabor, and some think that the spy who tells Sisera that the force is there is Heber himself, that he's cooperating with Sisera, and we find out later a little bit more about that relationship. So once Sisera knows that, um, the, that this great force is gathered, he then, it tells us in verse 13, he gathers his 900 chariots and all his soldiers, and they, they come to this place, along the Kishon River in this nice flat valley. Uh, a lot of times people compare these chariots to tanks. They're only like tanks in if they, they can mow people down. They're not like tanks in terms of being able to go over rough terrain. Uh, they're terrible for going over rough terrain. But in this long valley here, they're, they're the weapon of choice. So they can cover tremendous space. So basically now we have these Israelite soldiers on the top of this mountain, these chariots laid out in the valley, and Deborah says in verse 15, hey, what are you waiting for, man? This is the moment. Go. And it's basically a suicide mission. It, it really is, because after the element of surprise, whatever you get from 10,000 people screaming down a hill, you're absolutely not in the right place you want to be. You're on flat ground with uh, a whole army of chariots and heavy uh, weaponry coming at you. And yet, what does verse 15 say to us? They, they come down from the mountain, and verse 15 says, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera lighted on his chariot and fled away. But Barak pursues them all the way. They, they completely rout the army. And, and we might be saying, well, how is this possible? Well, we should first note it's not possible 
if just left to humans. And at every point in this story, we have been reminded, this is what God's doing. In verse 7, God says, I'm going to gather these people there. Uh, In verse 14, uh, Deborah says, the Lord has delivered them into your hand. In verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his army. How did he do it? I put a couple of verses from the poem, the song in chapter 5, in the outline just so you could see. We, we, we think we have a little glimpse. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 5. O oh Lord, when you went from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, that's on the far east, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. And then uh, Judges 5.21, the torrent of Kishon swept them away, that ancient torrent the torrent of Kishon, O my soul, march on in strength. And what it seems like happened was that God sent a storm coming from the east, from Eden, and a violent storm hit this area. And so this little river, Kishon, which has barely got any water in it during most of the year, but during the rainy season, it quickly floods. It overflowed its banks. And so that great plain, which was wonderful for chariots to ride on, became a giant mud bog. And all those chariots sunk in the mud. And uh, the lightly armed soldiers coming down the hill had the advantage as they swept over them and defeated them. Gordon Ketty, speaking about this, says, Just as Sisera's assets, the chariots, were rendered liabilities by water and mud, so Israel's liability lack of heavy weapons became a positive asset. That this was God turning the tables uh, almost on a dime. Now obviously Sisera wasn't dumb. He, he knew his chariots would not work in muddy, wet conditions. So why did he bring his army right along the river? And most commentators think that this probably happened during the dry season. That that rain was not expected at all. And that here you have God doing something uh, absolutely incredible. A providentially timed rainstorm during the dry season that comes in and flips the table and takes all the assets of the enemy and makes them liabilities and takes the liabilities of his people and makes them assets. And that is, it is fascinating that that is often how God works. That in the midst of our need, he turns the table in such a way so that the very thing that we think is holding us back, whether that's a physical limitation or a challenge with our job or a spiritual struggle that we're having, and he takes that thing that we think is a liability and he makes that into an asset. He, he, he enables us to be able to minister to somebody else in their time of need because of what we've experienced as God works through us. And it's all part of his perfect plan. He works through unexpected people and sometimes through the most surprising circumstances. I, I don't know what God's going to do through the, the Selma RP Church, but I know that the entire denomination has rallied to support them because a tornado came through and knocked down their building. And they're experiencing God's grace in a way that they haven't for some time. It is through a difficulty. But I'll be very interested to see how God might take something uh, that we think is a huge liability and turn it into an asset uh, 
as he works. Uh, God's ability to work through surprising circumstances is truly wonderful. And fourthly, we see here that sometimes God's grace comes to you in such a shocking way that you know it could only be his hand at work. And we see this in verses 17 to 24. So the battle is won. We're told that Barak pursues the chariots and the army all the way back to Harasheth Hagoyim, and the entire army is wiped out. However, verse 17 says that Sisera, at some point in the battle, he had run away from the mess on foot. And he finds himself at the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber. So now this is a totally new character, this woman, Jael. And so what you have to realize is that while uh, the army is pursuing uh, the enemy back towards Harasheth Hagoim, this way, Sisera has some, at some point gotten off and he's running backwards uh, to the, back to the east. And uh, some commentators think that he could have been running for 10 miles or more. So the fact that he shows up at this tent and he's very tired is no surprise. Now what's interesting is we now know why Heber the Kenite has moved far away from the other Kenites and is living up in this area. It says there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. The Kenites had, had thrown their lot in with Israel and yet here's a Kenite that's basically a traitor. He's left Israel and he's helping the oppressor of Israel. And, uh, and, and so this is very surprising. And that's why some people think this is the guy that, that uh, alerted Sisera to the presence of Barak and his army. Well, listen to, then to what uh, this new character, Jael, the wife of Heber, does. She's, she's the wife of this traitor. There, there's a peace relationship with uh, Jabin. So... Uh, when Sisera shows up, he has every reason to expect they're going to care for him. So she says to him in verse 18, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside, do not fear. And he comes in and uh, she makes him comfortable. She gives him uh, water to drink. Uh, there's some uh, in, in the chapter five, it seems like may have even given her something to eat, something like yogurt, uh, a milk product. She promises she'll watch out and uh, that he can just rest there and be comfortable. And then uh, everything gets turned on its head again in verse 21 because Jael takes a tent peg and creeps quietly over to the sleeping man. So it'd be a long uh, wooden, pointed wooden stick and puts it on his head and takes a wooden mallet and drives the tent peg all the way through his head into the ground on the other side. Uh, shocking. And, and Barak, who's been chasing uh, Sisera for these many miles, seems to show up at just, at just this time. And then as Barak pursued in verse 22, uh, he finds out that he's too late. And just as God had said, Jael gets the glory and Barak doesn't get the glory. And I, and I think it is hard to know, I mean, the kids love this story, obviously, but it's hard to know what, what to do with a story like this. It's disturbing, it's graphic, um, it's shocking in some ways, but we have to recognize this is God's method, that God is the one who defeated uh, Sisera. You see in verse 23, on that day God subdued Jabin, 
uh, king of Canaan in the presence of the children, and the hand of Israel grew strong and stronger against Jabin until they had destroyed the king, uh, Jabin, the king of Canaan. So it took a while, but this was the decisive blow, and over time they were able to defeat uh, Jabin in Hazor. And so clearly this was the mechanism that God used. And when we thought uh, that the glory would go to a woman, we thought that was going to be Deborah, but no, it's this other woman. And, and I think what's, what we sometimes miss is what's even more shocking about this is who this woman, woman is. So she's, she's not a Schwarzenegger grade action hero. She is a housewife. And she's presented as a housewife. And she kills the enemy with a, basically a home appliance. It was women's work to put the tents up and to take them down. So this is like, you know, grabbing the, uh, the, I, I, you know, the frying pan or whatever is at hand and using a, a tool from the home to do this deed. In addition to see how she uses her maternal sort of instincts and skills, you know, come here, it's okay, I'll give you a cup of milk, tuck you in bed, tell you uh, everything's okay. Now, I know some of the commentators are very hard on JL, right? I, if, if Heber didn't sleep with one eye open, he should, uh, especially after this. Um, and and some, of the, some of the commentators have actually called her treacherous. But you see the kind of risk she takes on to herself. She's not a fighter, that's the whole point. And, and there's a chance, you know, she's going to miss, uh, he'll wake up, uh, she won't actually kill him, she'll just make him mad. And then on top of all that, her husband was allied with Jabin. And, and Jabin in Hazor was not taken out at this point. And what's, the, what's the, the proof that she won't then have to pay the price for having killed uh, Jabin's general, Sisera? And so uh, she takes on an amazing amount of risk to do this as a housewife and as a non-Jewish housewife, right? who, who, whose faithfulness to Israel and Israel's God, despite her husband's apostasy, is truly amazing, literally shocking. Uh, a friend of mine told me that he was convinced that God had used his serious health struggles to bring him to the point where he realized he had to submit himself to the Lord. He could only do it if he was trusting in the Lord. And in and, and some way, sometimes this is how God's work. He, he works in shocking ways to get our attention and to change our lives. And this is what's going on here. The fact that a non-Israelite housewife using a home uh, appliance, in essence, is able to kill a professional soldier in her tent without a fight. It's so sho shocking that it's meant to confirm in our minds this could only be the work of God. This could only be the work of God. And sometimes that's what happens in our own lives. God works in, such, in ways that are so shocking we know that it's his work, and we cannot miss that it's him who's doing it. And this is so we will think rightly about these things. I put in your outline 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency 
is from God. And that is what we are to think as God's grace comes to us sometimes in such shocking ways we cannot miss that it's from him. And that leads us to the final thing we want to consider is that we need to learn to marvel at the surprising and unexpected grace of God in our lives. So that's the proper response to this passage, to recognize how desperately we stand in need of God's grace, to recognize there are challenges you cannot overcome in your own life, but the good news is that you don't have to because God's grace continues to flow to you through unexpected people, surprising circumstances that can even be shocking at times. And, and this, of course, is what points us to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus was the Savior that no one expected. His, his disciples had no idea what he was doing. And they, and they continued to be confused almost you know, right to the end. You're not going to die. They envisioned greatness. Which one of us is going to be the greatest when you come into your kingdom? They had no idea what he was coming to do. And the circumstances around his ministry of grace were surprising and even shocking because he came into the world and he lived humbly and faithfully obeying God's law in all of its particulars, but loving all people. The only person who ever lived completely without hypocrisy in history, and yet he's charged and convicted as a blasphemer. And then he was laid out on the wood, and a long steel spike was hammered into his hands and his feet. Shocking way for the Son of God to be treated, to allow himself to be killed by his own creatures. And, and yet that's exactly the way his grace comes to us. That's how we're forgiven of our sins. That's how we're given grace to live each day because our Savior was violently murdered by his own creatures. And Jesus rose from the dead so that he lives to continually Pour out his grace on you if you're one of his children, if you've put your faith in him. And, and this is why our sense of awe needs to increase. Because Jesus suffered in this way, this shocking way. It reminds you that Jesus' grace can get to you through anything. Nothing can stop him. Romans 8.32 reminds us, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how, he, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Look at the cross and you know that God will give you everything you need because what he's already given you in his son. God's grace just continues to be poured out through the Lord. And what we need to do is to remind ourselves to recognize it. When you get that phone call from the friend to encourage you and, and you, you weren't expecting it, when uh, some unexpected uh, help comes in the mail or when a situation is resolved in some way seemingly out of the blue, and you're reminded again and again that this is God's grace flowing out to his people. 
Later this month will be the 10th year anniversary of when uh, I was diagnosed with leukemia. And, and one of the greatest experiences our family had in that uh, battle that started 10 years ago was the grace that flowed to us through the people in this congregation. People who took uh, our daughters aside and spent time invested in my 16-year-old daughter, who was our oldest child at that time, to help them while we were all dealing with we didn't know what at that time. And that's God's grace coming in surprising, unexpected ways and circumstances and people. But what a blessing to be part of his people and to be in the environment where that grace is flowing. So as you think about this story, there's a lot that can distract us here. The focus should be on the grace of God coming to his people in unexpected and surprising ways so that we would learn to marvel at his grace as it flows to us in its, all its different ways in our lives. Let's pray. Let's give him thanks for that grace. Heavenly Father, we're, we're almost uh, sort of flabbergasted that this story is even in the Bible. Uh, and, and yet, Lord, we understand it's a picture of the radical nature of salvation, the, the links that you go to to save your people. And we thank you for your grace, which flows to us through a Savior who was willing to be nailed to a cross and to die in our place. We thank you that that grace continues to flow to us after we come to faith, uh, enabling us to live every day uh, dealing with the challenges we face. Lord, help us to recognize our need and help us to learn to see and to celebrate and to marvel at your grace that continues to be poured into our lives through surprising circumstances and unexpected people. How we thank you, Lord, and how we pray that you would enable us ourselves to be conduits of that grace as we seek to love one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And we'll uh, respond back to the Lord now by singing from Psalm 83. Psalm 83 is the only psalm that actually mentions Sisera by name. But isn't it amazing that God included a, a worship song in the Bible that mentions, among other things, this event that we just studied this morning. It says here, treat them like Sisera at Kishon's Brook. And what it is is a cry to the Lord that he would deal with the enemies of his people in the current time, just as he has throughout all history. And so the, the psalmist reflects on some of the numerous times when God has worked in amazing ways. And this one we just read about is one of them. But notice the way the psalm ends, that at the end of it all, let them know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, you are the one most high over all the earth. That our, our great desire is that all people, even those who are the enemies of God, would come to know him as the God most high over all the earth. Let's stand and we'll sing our praise to the Lord.